Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Fraser Valander Institute podcast. Um, I'm Stuart McIntyre, I'm Head of Research at the Fraser Valander Institute. Um, and today we'll talk about some of the challenges ahead for households and families as lockdown begins to ease. In particular, issues around balancing education, work and childcare. Joining me for this episode are Jennifer Johnson, public affairs expert who wrote a recent article which prompted this discussion um, for the think tank Reform Scotland on the need for a virtual school for pupils across Scotland, given some of the challenges that lie ahead um, for parents. Also joining me is Tanya Wilson, an economist from the University of Glasgow, um, who researches and teaches in, in labour and family economics. And finally, my colleague Emma Congreve, um, who heads up the work in the Fraser Valander Institute around poverty and inequality. Thank you all for joining um, this session. So from today, the end of week 10 of the lockdown, we're beginning to see some lifting of the lockdown measures in Scotland, but it's clear that this is going to be a process that takes place over months rather than weeks. Yesterday, the Scottish Government set out some guidance on how they might begin to reopen schools in Scotland. These include plans for changing the physical estate to accommodate physical distancing, but also some local authorities are looking at part-time learning and making use of, of sort of blended learning combining in-person teaching and some online and at-home learning for pupils. So against that context, and, and to kick us off, Jen, do you want to maybe set out some of the key messages um, from the article that you did for Reform Scotland um, and, and, and some of the, the challenges that lie ahead? Thanks very much. Um, I was really pleased to be asked to write the piece for Reform Scotland. I'm, like many parents, asked to work at home through the period of lockdown and probably for many months to come. There were two issues really that I wanted to highlight in the piece. The first one was just the sheer impossibility almost of performing eight hours of work a day. My husband also does eight hours of work a day and we have a minimum of 14 hours of childcare to perform in between that. It's very much a simultaneous experience of working and childcare. And the second thing that I wanted to highlight was I was getting quite curious I suppose about how other children were learning. We were certainly started off by our school, our daughters in P1, on a blended learning experience. So on the 4th of May, that was week six, I asked on social media if other parents could share with me what their experience had been. And it was fascinating. I got responses from about 35 to 40 parents across 11 different local authority areas and 20 different methods of teaching and delivery were mentioned. So that could be things like Google Teams, Glow, Seesaw, YouTube. Some teachers were being amazingly innovative. Some teachers seemed to have vanished. And that to me was interesting about why there was no national approach, which got me thinking about the idea of a short term national curriculum, which could be delivered on a series of very simple websites that were open access. And that was really the gist of, of the piece. I think that that's really interesting and the research you did um, trying to understand the experience of parents across um, across Scotland I thought was, was really interesting. Um, I mean I guess maybe to bring Tanya in this point is, is one of the things that we know um, as, as economists that even in normal times parents have to juggle um, childcare along with working um, but now we're adding this additional element of, of essentially homeschooling or, or at least supporting um, children to, to engage with that blended learning. Um, I mean, what, what, 
what are your reflections, I guess, on, on how this might impact on um, the shape of our labour market and, and, and where some of the issues arise? Yeah, so when we go and think about how people divide their time between uh, working and domestic production, and by domestic production, I, I mean all of these things that people undertake within households that are unpaid. But when we think about those tasks that people do within households, many of these actually reflect things that uh, are important work uh, for individuals and households to do that are just not remunerated. So they're not paid, they don't turn up in the national statistics for GDP. But we can go and think that there are many, many important tasks that happen within uh, a domestic environment within the household that are absolutely fundamental to the working of, of the economy. And it has always been the case that those tasks are not valued in the same way as labour force tasks, i.e. work that you go and get paid for. And in these very, very extreme circumstances, this is really, really being highlighted. Some of the issues that Jennifer highlighted in her piece was the difficulty between balancing um, those tasks that you do that you go and get paid for, which you need in order to be able to go and live your lifestyle and enjoy your standard of living, but also those absolute fundamental tasks that you need to be able to go and perform as well in order to go and be able to go and live, but these don't go and get paid. And how do you juggle those two things together? And in our working environment prior to the lockdown, uh, in one way, like we separated those two tasks out such that uh, childcare or you know, the education of children happened outside of the, the home by individuals who were paid in order to go and do that task. We're now in a situation because of social distancing and all of the other issues that we're facing at the moment that we're bringing those tasks into the home. And uh, as Jennifer clearly pointed out, the mass does not add up if you need to spend eight hours a day doing work and 14 hours a day doing childcare. Um, you also need to sleep and eat. Uh, like there's just not enough hours in the day. So that I do feel that at least in the short term, there are going to go and be fundamental changes in the way that we uh, do our work because, of course, we don't know how long this period is going to go on for. Yeah, I think that's a good. I think that's a good point as well. I mean, one of the things that um, you know, as, as economists, we've, we've worried about for a while is is just the interaction between um, working and childcare and what impact that has on on dynamism in the labour market. I guess um, just because those things are so intertwined, but now we're adding an, an additional layer onto that. Um, I mean, I guess to, to pick up on um, Jen's point earlier, um, Emma, on just the differences across Scotland. I guess the, when I think about the inequalities of this, there's two dimensions of this. One is just, and Jen picked up on this in her piece as well, just the ability of parents to do this sort of juggling um, and the inequality that different parents will have different types of jobs which support this activity more or less. Um, and also just the inequality of, of education provision and what that might do to um, attainment, I guess, across Scotland? Yeah, it's it's thrown another kind of um, 
issue into the whole um, sort of debate around the role of, of childcare and schooling about um, looking at improving educational attainment, um, as well as trying to think about how to um, ensure that women are able to participate as fully as possible in the labour market. Now we have an additional um, issue of, of public health um, and the issues around children being in close proximity to each other. So, of course, it just makes an already complicated situation even more complicated. Um, and the government is, is, is talking a lot about issues around educational attainment. So when you look at the thrust of what they talk about in their speeches and in the planning, it, it does seem to have that focus on, on trying to get children back into schools in order to support their um, educational attainment. And there does seem to be a bit of bit less of a, of a focus on what that means um, for, for families and how they can actually make that work. So where are these kind of priorities around ensuring that earnings can um, keep pace um, throughout, or women's earnings particularly can keep pace with men throughout this crisis? Because if we look at some of the research that's come out, um, from, for example, from the IFS this week, they have found from their surveys of parents, so um, dual parent work, um, dual parent households, finding that it is, it is women who are taking on um, more of the childcare and indeed more of the household chores as well. Even when it's the, the father who has been furloughed and the mother stays in work, even then women are still at, at, at best sharing equally the childcare um, with the father but still continuing to do five hours of paid work on top of that when the father um, isn't, isn't working. Um, so there are these imbalances already in, in households we've talked about and that Jennifer's um, piece looks at in a lot of detail. And we are obviously thinking that where there's issues around women's earning capabilities, that in turn has an is, uh, a consequence for household income. And we know attainment is also linked to household income. So there's all these things that have to be considered at once. We can't really just focus on attainment without thinking really carefully about what's happening to women's earnings through this. Um, but also we need to continue to focus on how to protect um, population from the spread and another kind of peak of coronavirus. So it's not an easy thing for, for anyone to try and grapple with. Um, but I would have a worry that this, because just traditionally, um, it's, there's this assumption that women will take on more of the, the care and uh, household chores in the household, that that, that, that isn't being challenged um, during this coronavirus pandemic. There isn't being enough being done to ensure that we don't increase those inequalities within households. Um, so I think that's, that's what we need to kind of think about and, and hopefully um, government will be able to get a better grasp of this and, and actually ensure that more harm isn't created as we move into these next stages of um, restart. Thanks, Emma. I mean, just before I, I want to bring Tanya in a bit on this, but just before I do, one of the things, Jen, you, you pricked up in, in your article was, was a point that I think Emma um, developed there about 
people falling through the cracks of the different support that's available. Um, and I guess, again, if you overlay some of those who have fallen through the cracks, then there's a clear gender dimension to that as well. Um, there really is. Um, I mean, on an anecdotal level, me and the other women that I know who have worked really hard for our careers, we, we feel quite desperate at the moment because we are clinging to our jobs and making huge efforts to keep our jobs. But there's no doubt that we're also doing the mum things that we always do, plus a coronavirus response. So that means additional work in terms of bringing in food to the household. So organising click and collect or taking dangerous runs to the shop. It means thinking about what children need that is now hard to get in terms of clothes and things to play with. Um, and we're very lucky we can afford to make those choices and to protect ourselves in that way. I'm very concerned about families who are more vulnerable, who don't have the resource or the advocating skills to make this new world work for them. And yeah, I mean, I, I, could, I could speak forever really about the, the comments that I've had from other women who like me have worked really hard to get where they are and now this feels like quite a dangerous time. Yeah I think that's I mean one, one of the things um, I think as, as economists we worry about is how persistent some of the changes that we see in the labour market during a crisis are um, and you know I guess Tanya you, we do see inequalities in the labour market across multiple dimensions um, some of those will have changed through this crisis. I guess one of the things that we want to understand is how persistent some of those changes might be and, and might there be an opportunity to, to, to eradicate some of the, the, the differences that were there before, um, but at the same time, we've got to be careful about, about new inequalities emerging. Absolutely. As both Emma and, and Jennifer pointed out, I mean, like you, uh, there, there is evidence, both anecdotal and also that which was highlighted by the IFS, that really points to the fact that it is women who are very much taking up the burden of, uh, of childcare responsibilities during this period. We also need to go and think, and this is a very, very important point, that around 15% of, of households are single parent households. And these are often also headed by women. And you know, we think of the, 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 the challenges that are faced by dual earner households. Um, and we just think that these are gonna be absolutely compounded for those single um, headed households where the, you know, the, the single parent, which most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time is female, is in a situation that she does not have that opportunity to share the, um, the childcare responsibilities. So one of the things that was highlighted in the IFS report that Emma referred to was that <clears throat> we've known this for a long time, that even prior to this situation, that the, uh, that the, the majority of uh, the domestic and household responsibilities fell on, um, fell on women. And something that was highlighted in Jennifer's report in her personal circumstances, that her partner earns more money than she does. So from an economist's point of view, we would look at that and say that it is a logical division of labor that that person who earns the more should concentrate in work environment in order to go and bring in a higher salary. And the person who does not earn as much should concentrate 
on the other uh, responsibilities within the household that are unpaid. However, what that does is it really entrenches those um, inequalities that were already present before the, um, before the lockdown, and it's going to potentially widen that gap. We know that before the lockdown in dual households with two opposite sex partners, that women's paid, uh, women's worked around 80% of what uh, men worked. Uh, and in terms of hours, like women's hours were 60% of men's hours. Uh, now after work down, when we look at hours, like you know, women are working far fewer hours. So it does seem to go and be that many uh, households have made that decision that to in, uh, that you could say to go and protect the father's earnings at the cost of the mother's employment. And the danger is, is that that becomes entrenched in entrenched the longer that this period goes on for. Yeah, I, I think there's a whole series of, of interesting areas. I guess this sort of um, gets us into the interesting questions about how policy can help prevent some of these damaging um, features from persisting. Um, I mean, one of the um, interesting things, sort of post-financial crisis, Emma, is you know we've we've seen increases, um, substantial increases in female participation rates. Um, and I guess that means that coming out of this crisis, we want to think a bit more about how policy, um, particularly um, some of the fiscal supports available, um, can, can help support the labour market. Yeah, so we have seen increases in female participation, absolutely. But there are obviously concerns about the quality of, of some of those jobs that, that have, you know, Seem to, the labour market seems to have produced that women are, are taking up. So, you know, are they good hours? Are they, um, you know, do they offer flexibility? Do they offer the things that actually are really important um, for working mothers in particular, um, and indeed working fathers? Um, so there is something that needs to be thought about in this sense about, there's a lot of people that are thinking that this, uh, this crisis has given us a bit of a chance to pause and potentially rethink what the economy should look like in the future. And this needs to be at the core of it. Um, it was already a big priority for the Scottish government before the lockdown. Um, you know, closing the gender pay gap is, is one of their key um, ambitions. But what issues will come up for, for thinking ahead because of the amount of uncertainty that's going on and will continue to go on until there's a vaccine or a cure is that what are people's decisions making going to look like in terms of things even like progression? Like are people who are worried that they're going to have to, you know, lock down again quickly, take their children out of school, are they going to be prepared to, to either, you know, maintain their current conditions of, of employment um, or are they going to think maybe, or maybe we need to go, one of us needs to go part time in order to kind of cope with some of this uncertainty. But so that might be at the extreme end, but, at the more sort of more obvious end for many people if they're thinking about progression in the workplace and I appreciate you know we're going to go into some difficult economic times there might not be a huge amount of progression opportunities around but if you're thinking about oh maybe um you know this is the time to progress my career and take a step up with this amount of uncertainty around there's going to be probably very few mothers that feel this is a good time to take a leap and to you know 
move jobs or uh, you know move away from an employee that may have been quite understanding you know through this period or move into a job where it takes more responsibility so that's really worrying because that's one of the biggest determinants really long term of the gender pay gap is a lack of progression and a lack of women in the senior um, senior roles so so that's something that i i think policy will need to concentrate on but but how do you do that um, i mean there's, there's a couple of things i suppose from the past that that the scottish government has looked at so things like um returners schemes so that if people have had to take a bit of time out and in this case they do particularly look at women that there's a schemes in place to try and get people back to where they were before and accelerate their careers so that's something that could be developed and looked at more and the, the employability services that, that exist under Fair Start Scotland um, they're going to probably have to, to to think what their role is in this. So these might not be your your you know the typical customers that are um, you know that may be struggling for for other reasons to get in um, to, to good fair work. But you know there's going to be a lot of people who will potentially have needed to take either a pause or um, from working altogether or if, you know cut down on their some of their ambitions that for a good strong productive economy that has as many women involved in it as, as is possible and um, we need to think about how we can fast forward um, for for people that have been particularly affected by this crisis. I think that's, that's just a whole series of good points. Um, I mean I guess in some senses what's different um, or one of the things that's different in this current crisis apart from the fact that you know it's going the, the, the lifting of, of lockdown is going to take um, some time um, to, to fully lift. I guess in contrast to previous crisis, we've now got this additional layer um, that Jen identified in her article of parents now involved very directly in the education of children and also the fact that um, the way in which that education is delivered is going to potentially be different across Scotland, but also will gradually unwind hopefully back to where it was before this crisis in terms of the nature of the provision. Um, so I mean I guess just as a, as, as a segue into this Jen, the Scottish Government made put out some, some guidance to schools yesterday um, to, to try to set out what schools might want to think about. We've already seen some local authorities talk about um, blended learning um, others um, changing physical campus, some both. I guess, can I kick us off on this? Do, do you have any immediate reflections on, on the guidance that came out yesterday um, and the direction of travel that's been articulated? So I'm obviously not privy to what the Education Recovery Group is working through. Um, there's a huge number of organisations that Scottish Government have brought around that group. What I would say is quite notable is that there are no children or young people's organisations, so there's no voice of the child or the young people on that organisation directly. I think the, the process they've set out is that 32 local authorities will set their own paths for how they're going to deliver blended learning. Um, that may be from a demand from within the group, from local authorities themselves, that they want to do this in their own way. There's over 5,000 schools in Scotland and 51,000 teachers. To my mind, if I was designing something, I would probably start with a national curriculum that would leave teachers free to give individualised help and support and to use that backbone to enhance learning and to do their own thing. They don't seem to be doing that. They seem to be 
asking local authorities to find their own solutions that work for their local area. I'm not an educationalist, so I can't predict whether that would work or not. My instinct is it seems quite messy and a national curriculum would give you reliability and certainly easy, under, understandable ways to access education. I just wanted to, to pick up as well on what Emma and Tanya had said there just about the inbuilt inequality that we already have. There's never been a bridge between economic policy and education policy that I can see that has the needs of working parents, modern, the modern economy there. There's two things that just don't work in terms of education policy and working parents. The first is that the school year in Scotland has 77 days of holiday and the average worker in Scotland would have between 25 and 30 days of annual leave. So even in a two parent household, you're still 17 days short of being able to cover that. In 2018, I surveyed 32 local authorities in Scotland and asked them about primary ones doing half days. This is a throwback to maybe 100, 150 years ago of seeking primary ones in very gently to the start of education. And more than half of local authorities then still had six or eight weeks of half days for primary ones. That doesn't work with the way that families work now. Everybody works as much as they possibly can. And I'm pleased that since I wrote that article and did that research that things have changed there and it's a much fewer number of local authorities who still insist on that period of time. The other thing I just wanted to pick up on was when you come off of your, if you have a baby, if you're lucky enough to have children, you've had a period of low pay because you're on maternity leave. You're then looking for a part-time role or to reduce your role to part-time. And where is the baby in that? Well, you pay someone to care for the baby. So you have an extra cost onto your household income. And the government, because of coronavirus, has put a pause on the 1140, the 1140 hours that we're going to deliver. And that's perfectly understandable because the school estates across Scotland will be in complete flux. But again, that's a structural issue that does not bridge between the economy and education because it doesn't fit with the way that families work and women work to have these huge expanses of time that you have to pay to fill or maybe you're lucky and have a very supportive family who will fill that for you with grands and aunties. The only other economy point just that Tanya and Emma were making there was about this, the idea that women work less and we earn less and we do, but that also leaves you with a part-time pension. And I don't think that's really talked about enough. And a lot of women I know now because of coronavirus are going to be looking for a lot more flexibility, they're going to be dropping hours and that I think will start another round of lower pensions and we should be mindful of that for women as well. Yeah, I think all, all three of those um, challenges are in and of themselves are pretty huge and thinking about just the structure of how we deliver education, um, how we support people who are taking time out of the labour market or reducing their participation in it for, for caring reasons and finally that sort of longer term question around um, pensions um, and, and I guess each of these gets to Tanya's earlier point about just inequality of how things are delivered within the household um, and you know the childcare point is a really good one um, I mean I get I wonder just on, on that point um, Tanya just about 
the division of, of activities within the household and how that provision of education going forward through the unwinding of the lockdown. Um, is there concern that this fundamentally and badly shapes our labour market, entrenching existing divisions? One of the issues that we were facing pre-lockdown was already systemic inequalities in the roles of men and women within households and also within uh, labour markets. Um, and that's also that was also addressed in the that is also addressed in the type of work that men and women do. So there are certain roles that you can go and think that lend themselves more easily to being completed from home. So there's certain types of work that are more easy uh, to go and do when you're at home. Yet it may be the case that the type of work that women are more likely to do are the type of work that you need to actually be in uh, the physical workspace in order to go and do. And that actually means um, an entrenchment of this, I, of the, the impossibility of doing your work and also simultaneously being at home um, in order to go and take childcare responsibilities and to go and deliver um, education. So from that may have that women withdraw more often from, from uh, the labour market. Can I just come in here, Stuart, yeah. just to say yeah. that we do have an opportunity here in a way, because we mentioned earlier about, you know, what happens in a crisis can have um, impacts going on um, further through time. And, you know, despite what the findings are saying about is women taking on more of the responsibility, there is also evidence that, that fathers are taking more uh, time and spending more time um, with their children, either through education or, or childcare for the younger children. So that, you know, trying to look for a bit of a silver lining in some of this, that potentially, you know, does give us an opportunity um, for, for thinking, okay, so men, men have, have, have done more of this. Um, it might, for some, mean that, they, that that carries on a bit more into the future. So obviously it could go the other way completely, um, but it could be maybe be part of, of an early kind of shift to, to men uh, taking on that moral responsibility in the home. And we see this where um, you know, paternity leave is more common um, in some countries. And you do tend to see that men continue to, to play a greater role in childcare in the years after. Um, so, so that, you know, there is that potential that it, it could rebalance some things in some households, but there are so many structural um, issues that will remain that will make that hard and, and it is, still really hard um, and probably some would say harder for men to be able to work um, part-time and care for their children because employers just aren't you know really accustomed to that and it's seen as a bit of, a, of an exception um, whereas for women it's seen as you know much much more normal so there might be a bit of a shift in norms during uh, as a result of, of this crisis um, which which could give us some opportunities for the future I guess what we need to to kind of keep banging the drum about from a, um, a policy, policy perspective is that if you want things to happen differently, then there are things you need to put in place to ensure that that, that can happen. Um, things don't just happen accidentally. Um, 
if there are structural factors that are preventing um, that from occurring. So, so there's, a, there's an opportunity here, but still a lot of challenges. And, and I agree with, with Tanya in that probably the balance is in terms of actually is probably going to cause more harm than, than progress in terms of women in the labour market. But, but potentially there are things um, we could do that mean it doesn't have to be that way. That's a good point, and it goes back to, to the various um, issues and gender identified, which you could argue are, are kind of structural about the way we deliver education. That is going to have to change um, in, in the months ahead. Um, so, do we have the, the opportunity to do something much better? Um, and, and secondly, this point about um, childcare. You know, as economists, we've been worried for a long time about um, the effect that the Let's be honest, um, the, the sort of um, piece together arrangements that many families have to balance their personal commitments with their work commitments with their caring responsibilities have meant that they've not been able to move job, progress within their job, um, and that's, that's, that's really killed a lot of dynamism in the labour market. So I, I guess, and maybe this is a bit um, unfair to put you in spot this, Jen, but I mean, I guess in terms of childcare policy, are there key things that, that you might want to see um, thought about in, in the months ahead? I'm not sure if these are appropriate solutions for now because we're in such a crisis period. And I'm grateful for the efforts that Scottish Government are putting together. I think for me, the worry has always been about when you start to have your children you're in your good job that you've had your mat leave from and then you're trying to re-enter the workplace, still at that salary point maybe, but on reduced hours. And the Scottish Government policy starts at three in terms of providing funded nursery hours. So I was a bit disappointed, to be honest, when they announced the increase of hours up to 11.40 because I had wanted that stretch to go down the way to meet people when they came off their maternity leave so that they could receive funded places for babies to allow women back into the workforce without taking that drop that then takes two or three years to recover from and then you might have another baby. That to me is a structural issue that could have been solved with consultation with parents but they have decided because they want a generational improvement in attainment in Scotland to concentrate on learning and support and that sort of safety that nursery brings you from the age of three, rather than supporting people getting back to work when children are maybe nine or 12 months. I think the world around us is changing at pace. And if you look at what the great education providers in Scotland are doing, colleges, universities, the open university, they provide online learning and blended learning already. And I'm not sure why there isn't a reason that children and young people shouldn't have this as part of their normal education from now on, because so much of our children's lives now is going to be screen-based, it's going to be digitally based, and maybe classrooms are for the personal interaction, learning how to work together, learning how to network, sharing these kind of skills, and there will, will always be an element now of blended learning and how we teach children in Scotland, but I'm not an educationalist. I, I don't have any expertise in that. It just seems instinctive to me that if universities, colleges and free education providers are doing it, then schools will probably have to move to that a bit as well. 
I think that's a good point. I mean, it's one thing um, that I know, speaking as, as an academic university and, and Tanya as, as, as well, we're, we're certainly um, having to confront this new reality. Um, I guess, Tanya, do you have any reflections on that? Yes, so like any good academic, I'm going to both agree and disagree with Jennifer in the same sentence. And I mean, when we're talking about the education of our, of our young people, there is a reason where in Scotland in particular puts a large focus on having small class sizes. And the reason for that is that personal interaction and for the teacher to have the ability to go and meet the needs of the children because every child is different. A, a one size fits all approach is, is generally not going to go and work, right? But on the other hand, Jennifer makes an incredibly good point that in the, in the, the survey that she did where she, he, uh, she got responses from parents across 11 council areas who were talking about 20 different methods of online provision. And, and you can think that like, you know, in, in our 32 council areas, there are probably very many, many different, different methods, much, with, much of which is going to be duplicating the same sort of resources. I don't think we can underestimate how much pressure that teachers are under at the moment in order to go and cater for um, children who are remote learning. And we can just think that like, you know, come the 11th of August and onwards when we move to a blended uh, model of learning, that pressure is just going to go and increase because teachers are going to have to be juggling not only providing online material, but also uh, doing the face-to-face -face interactions. And I know, and I'm sure Stuart is aware of this uh, as well, I've just moved to um, preparing for next year's uh, provision within the university. And it takes a very, very long time to go and produce materials that are good quality uh, in an online format. So having, um, however many, I think you said it was like, you know, 5,000 teachers all doing the same thing does seem to me to go and be a um, potentially, like, you know, there's a better use of their, their resources that encompasses both this mix of, like, you know, perhaps some standardized online materials that then allows teachers to, it frees up their time to go and spend more time on the individual interactions. Yeah, the, the analogy I've, I've sort of used with, um, with colleagues is a bit like, um, we don't all, when we sit down to do a course, write a new textbook. Instead, we take a textbook that's available um, and we support students to, to, to make use of that textbook with other resources, whether that be kind of us talking to them in the form of lectures or working through problems with them in tutorials. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely um, I think there's definitely some parallels with the experience universities are going through, but also with schools. I, I guess the question, Emma, would be to go back to this point about inequalities is the ability of, and so one of the things I, I worry a bit about is um, as we move more teaching online, do we have to make sure that every, you know, all pupils have the Wi-Fi, the IT, um, I know we worry about this from a university perspective, but you know, because if not, 
this move to online might just exacerbate existing inequalities in education. Yes, that is a really big concern. And it's not just the physical you know, equipment, it's also um, whether their home environment, you know, whether there's space to kind of have some quiet time to do, to do your work. Um, and this is a, this kind of ability to sort of develop these kind of sort of socio-emotional skills that is so imp such an important part of being at school and particularly you know for children that have, uh, have got a lot of stress at home due to kind of the financial situation that unfortunately far too many children in Scotland um, are facing so from that kind of um, well you know again thinking about what the Scottish government's priorities pre-crisis were um, poverty, child poverty, you know, is one of the biggest. We've got these really um, far-reaching targets in order to kind of uh, try and um, reduce the, the issues that, that so many children in Scotland are facing due to living in low-income households. Um, and the, I guess, you know, to, to end on a, a sort of a, a really <laughs> challenging point, um, you know, not having children in school means those children who are living in households where there's a lot of um you know financial stress or overcrowding or you know just just not a lot of kind of peace and quiet they're going to really struggle with the um with their with their education but we also know that children um who are living in those low-income households because of their parents earnings are you know also facing lots of uh, challenges as well so if there is a double whammy in terms of an impact on their parental earnings for example from their mother having to take um, fewer hours then that is going to create you know huge issues uh, building up in the system um, and will negatively impact on two of the government's um, key priorities which is educational attainment and reducing child poverty um, so I mean that's that's kind of what we could be facing um, and hopefully that will focus minds and, and realize actually there are things that can be done to help with this and and um, now is definitely the time to be doing those things. I think we've, we've through this conversation, flagged up um, a number of, of things that, that we're all worried about. And some of the aspects of policy that can support improving labour market outcomes and helping households and families to balance um, their responsibilities in this new normal. Just sort of drawing, um, I guess, the discussion to a close. Um, Jen, do you, do you just have any um, kind of final reflections on um, the next few months um, and and things that that you're concerned about over the next few months? And I guess as well, um, things that you think might help just as parents try to to, to juggle all the responsibilities they now face. Yeah, well, I think there's a short-term thing and a long-term thing aside from what I wrote into the Reform Scotland piece the short-term thing for me is that if you're like me and you've dribbled out your annual leave um, for the year to get to this point that's about to run out so if 32 councils in Scotland are going to stage their own come back to school plans they really need to communicate that to parents very quickly because there's no right for employees to gain furlough from their job um, that's completely in the hands of employers and if you haven't been offered or can't get furlough from your employer then you have the options of reducing your working hours working you know 
less than you are just now if your employer agrees. Sick lines, looking for emergency leave from work because we're looking at months, many months, not a few weeks more of this sort of time. So communicating with parents and carers working at home about what they can expect in terms of time in the classroom versus time at home is really critical because people are making decisions right now about whether they should quit their job, reduce their hours, try and endure for a bit longer. And that, that juggle can be done if we know what to ask for from employers. But if we don't know what to ask for, it's quite a difficult ask for parents. The, the second thing that just occurred to me when Emma was speaking there was that internet access really should be a utility now. It should be treated in the same way as, as heating and lighting and electricity. Um, if you're a vulnerable client or consumer in the community, then it's essential now for shopping, for education, for connectivity. And if we had it as a utility point in our, in our household lives and the way that regulation and legislation treats it, I think that would be better for everybody. And I know Scottish Government have made great efforts. Um, Mr Swinney did announce a huge tranche of laptops for pupils that don't have them. And I think through the welfare fund that Scottish Government have pushed a huge amount of money into, there is the option, I think, for vulnerable households to gain an internet connection, which I really welcome. And I think it is essential. It should just be a utility. Thanks, Jen. Um, Tanya, just again, as, as we're kind of looking through the next few months, um, and I think Jen picked up a number of really key points there. Um, what, from your point of view, as you look to the outlook both for educational attainment and equality, but also more generally the labour market, what are the key things you see? So I'm going to actually take a slightly longer term point, uh, uh, viewpoint in terms of, so the Scottish Government have announced that on the 11th of August that they're going to be bringing pupils back into school in some sort of, uh, some sort of shape. And I would very much encourage that, um, I know that like, you know, schools are going in and they're looking at better and creative use of the spaces that they have in order to, to facilitate provision, but are, um, are planning for this blended uh, approach potentially where, where pupils spend a proportion of time at home and a proportion of time in the school. And I would encourage potentially like, you know, the Scottish Government to go and look more at international experiences. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, stories I've heard from Denmark, where uh, within Denmark, they actually looked at other spaces, other public spaces, such as theatres, such as art galleries, where which aren't being used at the moment because of social distancing measures, that they actually use these as venues in order to go and provide education for children. Now, of course, that is not going to go and be challenge free. There are going to go and be certain areas that have many venues that could be used, but there are going to go and be certain areas, potentially more rural areas that only have limited venues that could be used. But my point here is the importance of getting children back in, into education, because we've talked about you know, the, the materials that they provided, the, the, the teaching that they provided, but it's also very important to, to recognise that children go and get a lot from the social interaction with their own peers, right? 
So the fact that they're social distancing means that they're not gaining that experience. And even when we go back to a blended approach, they won't be able to go and benefit from that experience. And to me, I really see that, like, you know, if a lot of efforts that are put in to come up with creative ways in order to go and provide the education experience, this really has a triple dividend. Not only do the children benefit in terms of their own personal um, education, but for all of the reasons that we've been discussing earlier, it will allow parents to go and get back to some sort of normal semblance of working life. It, and you know, that's also going to be very, very important to go and get the economy moving again. If you know, many workers are also parents and they're facing, they're facing personal challenges, that is also like Scotland's economy, like you know, this is their workforce. And then of course, the other issue that we highlighted earlier is like, you know, the, 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 the possibility that this period is going to go and really um, exacerbate existing inequalities. We've talked about gender, we could also go and talk uh, about social economic uh, status. Like, you know, these, these are entrenched and the longer that this go, goes on, obviously the danger is that these are going to become wider. And I really do feel that like, you know, one step is to try and focus on our children in order so that they go and have a better, uh, uh, they have an improved experience and are able to go and get this semblance of normal, normality more quickly. But that also goes and leads into all of these other things that we were discussing earlier. Thanks, Tanya. I think that's a really nice place to, to draw the podcast episode to a close. Thank you, Jennifer, Tanya and Emma for, for joining me for this episode. Remember that you can subscribe to this podcast series through all the major podcast streaming services. You can also follow us on Twitter at strath underscore FAI and catch up with all our latest articles on our website, fraserofallander.org.